Good morning. I brought some props with me here, so I'll have to take them out in just a second here. Um, thank you, worship team, for singing one of my favorite Swedish hymns. I don't know if you knew that How Great Thou Art is a Swedish hymn. It was written by close to the hometown where I was born in Sweden in the end of the 19th century, and eventually was translated into Russian, and then eventually translated into English. So thank you for that treat. Um, I have some props this morning, so I need to just take these out, and I'm going to explain as, I, as we go along what these all mean and why I'm using them today. I don't know if you realize what this is. This is a prayer shawl that I bought in Jerusalem when I was there with our students uh, last year. And as some of you know, we're going again, and several of you have already signed up for next year. But anyway, this is a prayer shawl, and I'm going to use it as an illustration. And so I'm going to wear it while I'm preaching, and hopefully it will be okay there. The theme of our community chapels, I don't know if you've been aware of this, have actually been great passages of scripture from the Bible. And so a few weeks ago, we heard Dr. Van Johnson speak on Romans chapter 12, 1 to 8. And then also a few weeks ago, we heard Colin McCartney speak on uh, the greatest commandment from Luke uh, uh, 10, 25 to 37. And uh, I have been asked to revisit that theme and because uh, Jesus was quoting from the Old Testament. So I'm going to look at what these texts mean in the Old Testament context uh, and why Jesus would have chosen these two commandments and to claim that the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of the law and the prophets depend on these. So, but, but just before we go to look at these two great passages from uh, the Old Testament, I just want to mention that all three synoptic gospels mention these commandments and have a discussion between Jesus and a scribe or lawyer. The Gospel of John does not mention the question that Jesus is given, but the Gospel of John records many messages by Jesus where he's explaining what it means to love God and to love one's neighbor. The phrase, to love your, to love your neighbor as yourself, uh, from Leviticus 19.18, actually is recorded eight times in the New Testament, uh, three times alone in Matthew's Gospel. And then Paul also quotes it in Romans 13.9 and Galatians 5.14. And in James, we find it as well, in James chapter 2.8. But what is the Old Testament background or meaning to the, these two great commandments? So I'd like to first, first to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 4 to 9. And I hope, uh, I know that they'll put the text up there, but I encourage you to bring your Bibles to chapel. It is chapel, you know. <laughs> anyway. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you arise. Bind them as a sign on your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This passage is known as the famous Shema in Hebrew, uh, and it's named after the first word in the Hebrew text beginning in verse 4, 
Shema is actually a Hebrew imperative verb that means to listen, to hear, to obey. Hear, O Israel, in fact, is a favorite phrase in the book of Deuteronomy. So in Hebrew it says, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. The Lord, uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now Jesus could hardly have taken any, a, a more familiar text for the Jewish people because the Shema was recited daily by pious Jews. And also they wrote the Shema, this text, on pieces of parchment and placed it on their doorposts, on the frame, taking this text literally. And this is where I brought some props. This is a mezuzah. And this is what the, the Hebrew word is used here, where it says to write it on your door uh, posts or door frames. And inside this mezuzah, you put the scripture. And this is a copy of the scripture that goes inside here. Uh, and this copy has Deuteronomy, this passage from Deuteronomy, as well as Deuteronomy 11, 13 to 21. Um, and they put this scripture in a little box, and I don't have a phylactery, but that's what they call them, a little box. You might have seen them. Uh, they were actually found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you went down to the Ram, you would have seen one. But uh, they, it's a little box that they would then put the scripture on their forehead when they, I mean, on their forehead when they pray, and their forearm when they're praying as well. So they bind it on their arm and bind it on their head uh, every time they pray. So it was very uh, physical reminders of these scriptures. And it became like a creed for the Jewish people, a confession of faith about their God. The Shema begins with an affirmation about Yahweh. The Lord our God, the Lord their personal God, He is one. The Lord is one. The oneness and singularity of God is being emphasized here. If you remember, Israel lived in a world full of idols, a world full of many gods. So Israel's faith stood out uh, against this background as affirming that there's only one God. The people were tempted to worship other gods, which of course is a warning that's given quickly in that chapter, just in a few verses later on. And so the Shema reminded them of the first and second commandment, that you shall not have any other god before you, or before me, and you shall not make an idol or engrave an image. And that is because I am God, I am only the God, the true God. So it begins with this affirmation, followed by a call to commitment, a command to love the Lord with your whole being, with everything, a total commitment of devotion and allegiance and loyalty. The command to love God is also one of Deuteronomy's favorite phrases as a way to express our, um, what God, our response to God. We love God by obeying God. But how can love be commanded? The fact that love can be commanded demonstrates that it's not just merely an emotion, which it is, but it is also a choice. It is a commitment that we make, demonstrated through obedience. It's loyal love, used in the metaphor of a marriage, a covenant marriage love, where you make a commitment to one another. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, what does those phrases mean? The Hebrew word for heart, levav, is not so much centered on emotions and feelings, although it does include that, it is the seat of the intellect, the will, the intention of the person. 
What you think in your heart affects and shapes your character, your choices, your intentions in life. And that's why you can sometimes translate this uh, as mind, to love God with all your mind. And this is what the Greek Septuagint did. It translated heart as mind. And we see this also mentioned in the Gospels, to love God with all our mind. So to love God with your heart is to love him with your mind, your will, your choices, your intentions. You choose to love. The second word, the Hebrew word for soul, nefesh, uh, refers to the life of an individual, the whole person, the whole self. I know that sometimes the word soul can be misleading, especially in the Hebrew understanding, because literally it relates to our breath, and if you or, or, um, historically thought maybe it's related to our neck. If you cut the neck, you cut the life of a person. So as a result, it means referring to the person, their breath, their life, their whole being. So when the psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul, he's actually saying, Rebecca, bless the Lord. Bless him with your, who, who you are, all your being, with all your life. So to love the Lord your God with your, whole, it, it's with your heart and soul is to love the Lord with your whole self, your whole being, which includes your rationality, your mental capacity, your moral choices, as well as your feelings and desires. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Another characteristic phrase of Deuteronomy, if you, if you went through the book, you will discover that. It's emphasizing entirety, completeness. But notice that Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6, adds something else. It's the only text that adds this um, to the Shema. And it says, to love the Lord your God with all your strength, with all your might, with all your power. In fact, the Hebrew noun there, me'od, only occurs twice in the Old Testament. It occurs here, and it occurs in 2 Kings 23, 25, where it says that King Josiah loved the Lord with all his heart and all his soul is all his mind, or his all his might or his strength. And so, of course, that's a quotation from Deuteronomy 6.5. Me'od is actually used more often in Hebrew as adverbally, as, as saying very or exceedingly. So when I say to my students, Todav Rabba, or Tov Me'od, Tov Me'od is very, very good, exceeding good. Um, so it means exceedingly, greatly, very. I was reading Christopher Wright, who's actually coming to campus next week, um, when he translated this using this adverbial phrase, uh, to love the Lord with all your might is to love with all your very muchness, with all your very muchness. And then he goes on to make this interesting observation. It may be that the third word is simply intensifying the other two as a climax. Love the Lord your God with total commitment, heart, with your total self, soul to total excess. Loving God should be over the top, end of quote. To total excess, to love God with everything, to excess. So we are commanded to love God completely, totally, with our whole being, with everything. And then we're told that the people are to internalize these words, to put them on their hearts, to teach them to their children, and to go about uh, sharing, continually talking about God's word, and about how to love God. And they are to create reminders uh, of this. And as I mentioned, the Jews took that literally, and they took it seriously to create physical reminders of this uh, as they would leave their home, as they would come back. Um, 
And of course, it, the, the image here is to you tell, talk about it from the day, time you get up in the morning to the time you go to bed, while you're sitting, while you're walking, while you're lying down, while you're eating, etc. It's a constant a picture. Um, what's interesting is that there's an emphasis on both the individual to be reminded as well as the family, the house, by putting the, the mezuzah on the doorframe. Every time you leave the home, you would see it. But also for the community as a whole, because uh, they were to put them on their gates, the gates of the city, where justice was uh, carried out, uh, where people would come and uh, settle disputes. They were to be reminded of these scriptures in, the whole, in their, all their spheres of life. So I wonder about ourselves, how seriously do we take these commandments? Do we speak to our family members or our friends, our co-workers about them? Do we talk about how can we love God more? Do we talk about his word? Do we challenge one another? Do we spur one another on? This scripture is telling us that we should be doing this. The other question I have for us are, what are the reminders that we have in our lives of God's word and of his commands to love him? Is it a cross? This is a holding cross that I bought in Jerusalem that's used for prayer, that you are to hold while you pray. Some of you might have crosses on your wall, or you might have a plaque of scripture that reminds you of God's word or God's love. Um, I'm wearing this prayer shawl for that reason because I wear it sometimes when I'm praying and doing my devotions because it reminds me that God's love totally surrounds me, that he is enveloping me in his love and it helps me to focus and to pray. So I want to encourage you to think of reminders, physical reminders that you can place maybe in your home, in your office, in, uh, in your bedroom or wherever to remind you to, that we need to love God with all our being to remember his word. The second greatest commandment that Jesus cites is love your neighbor as yourself, which comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Um, and I am actually going to read the larger section from where it comes. And uh, as I was reading it, I was thinking, I wonder how many of us actually remember the context of this passage when we hear Jesus saying, love your neighbor as yourself, because it actually comes from a larger passage in Leviticus 19, starting in verse 11 through 18. Um, but just also to mention, uh, reminding you that this was a popular verse in the New Testament. It's quoted eight times there. Also, this chapter of Leviticus 19 begins with the command by the Lord to the people to be holy as I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. And the Lord sets the example for his people what it means to be holy. And part of that relates to how we relate to one another. There's an ethical dimension in how we relate, how we treat one another in a relationship. And that is emphasized in this chapter. So beginning in Leviticus 19, verse 11, you shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You shall not defraud your neighbor. You shall not steal. You shall not keep for yourself the wages of a laborer until morning. You shall not revile the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You shall not render an unjust judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. With justice, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not profit by the blood of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin. 
You shall not reprove your neighbor, or you will incur guilt to yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear as grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. How many people realize that context when you hear that verse? Notice that this section actually falls into four different smaller units of paragraphs, and they're all divided with this refrain, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. And notice that there are several different words used to describe your neighbor. It says your fellow citizen. It uses the words like people, brother, kin, neighbor. And the word neighbor actually occurs three times in the passage. It becomes the climax in the passage. So the question is, how do you and I treat our neighbor? Now, if you look at the commands, you'll notice that most of them are in the negative of what not to do, how not to treat one's neighbor. As the famous Jewish rabbi Hillel put it, he said this, what is hateful to you, do not do to others. What is hateful to you, do not do to others. In other words, don't do to others what you would not want them to do to you. And that is really what's uh, coming out in this passage. But it, this passage concludes with this final phrase, to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's actually given in the positive. It's something you do for someone else rather than what you don't do. You do unto others what you would do to yourself. So the whole passage deals with examples of how we should treat our neighbor, our fellow citizen, our brother, our family members, etc. And notice some of the things that are highlighted. Don't steal, don't lie to one another, don't oppress, don't rob your neighbor. Practice justice, don't show favoritism, don't gossip, don't slander, don't hate. Don't let anger fester, don't bear a grudge. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Although the examples in this passage related to the Israelites in their context, to their community, we do learn from the larger context, if we just continued on in the chapter in verse 33 and 34, that this principle, to love your neighbor as yourself, also applied to the foreigner, to those who were not Israelites. In verse 33 and 34 of that same chapter, it says to treat the foreigner as a citizen, as one of you, and it says, you are to love him as yourself. This is, of course, what Jesus illustrated when he was asked the question, who is my neighbor? And he gave, of course, the parable of the Good Samaritan in that context. And later on, in, in, in earlier in Matthew, he also said, love your enemy in Matthew 5. So there's no limit to who our neighbor is, even the stranger, the foreigner, the despised Samaritan, even our enemy is our neighbor. So in other words, everyone is our neighbor, and we are to love one another in this way as we love ourselves. But then the question is, how do we love ourselves? How do we love ourselves? We don't want to hurt ourselves. We sometimes pamper ourselves. We sometimes uh, we want to protect ourselves, and hopefully we don't hate ourselves. And as a result, we want to be treated with respect, with honor by others, just as we want our, uh, as we want, uh, we, as we, um, we want to be treated by one another just as we see ourselves and how we love ourselves as well, treating with respect and honor. Now notice that the passage again is a command. The word love, love your neighbor is a command. 
Love is not merely an emotion or an attitude. Again, it is a choice that is demonstrated in action, where you can choose to love your neighbor, where you can choose to love your enemy. We choose not to hate. We choose not to take revenge or bear a grudge. In fact, it's easier to bear a grudge than it is to forgive and to love. But we choose to love and we choose to forgive. So Jesus reminds us of these two great commandments, that we are to love God with our whole being and we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And interestingly enough, Jesus too emphasized that this was a command, it is not an option. In John chapter 14, 12 to 14, Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus set a high standard for us. He illustrated for us what it means to show sacrificial love. He laid down his life for his friends, for you and me. 1 John 4, 9 says, We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. John 5, verse 8 reminds us that God just demonstrated his love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the Lord took the first step. The Lord took the initiative to love. He chose Abraham because he loved Abraham. He chose Israel because he loved Israel. And he chooses us to be his friends because he loves us. God has taken the first step in love towards us. And it's because God is love and he loves us so deeply, he wants that love returned. He desires relationship. He desires, it's for our best interest, he wants to be in relationship. As I was reflecting on this uh, text while I was preparing for this, I was realizing that's really a paradox in this. It's a real paradox to think that to love God fully as we are and to love our neighbor as ourselves, we need God's help. That's the paradox. We can't do it on our own. Our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful and desperately sick. And Jeremiah uses that image of being sick a heart that's deceived and sick, Jeremiah 17, 9. Paul also mentions that he struggles in Romans 7, and he concludes that passage by saying, wretched man that I am, who can set me free from this body of death? And then he says this wonderful truth, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is Jesus who can help us to love him, to love our neighbor. So we need God to transform our hearts, to change us so we can love. We need the Spirit of God working in us, in our hearts, giving us his love. So do you and I love God with our whole being? And do we love our neighbor as we should? Now, for all honest, we'll say, no, we don't. In fact, I wrestled with the fact that I was preaching on this topic. I was given this topic. And I was, as I was pre preparing, I kept praying, Lord, you know that I don't love you with all my heart. You know that I don't love my neighbor as I should. But then, as I was praying and thinking about this, a truth struck me. I don't love God with all my heart, but I really want to. 
It's my dear, deep desire to do so. And that's really the, what matters. That is what is, counts, and that is the key. What is our heart's desire? Is it to love God, to serve God fully and faithfully? Is it our goal, our purpose in life? Of course, God knows our weaknesses, our failures, and thankfully, he is gracious and forgiving. So rather than feeling guilty about the fact that we don't love God and we continually fail in loving one another, although it is good to be convicted by the Spirit if it leads us to repentance, and we need to repent when we have failed, yet it's helpful for us to think of this command more positively as our goal, as our deep desire, as our purpose in life. The Lord has given us a command to love and a call to total commitment to love God with all of who we are and to love one another as we love ourselves. May that be our desire today. May it be our goal, our purpose. And may we pray that God will help us to love him more and to love one another more deeply. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we acknowledge that we have not loved you with all our heart. And we have not loved our neighbors as we should. And we desperately need you to help us to love you and to love each other. But we also ask you to help us to have that deep desire for more of you, for more of understanding your love for us so that we can love you more deeply. To see others as you see them so we can love them more deeply. We acknowledge that we need you. Give us this desire. Give us this purpose and love and life to love you more. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.